Well, growing up in the church, I have vivid memories of my childhood pastor preaching through those wonderful Advent themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. And he would get up that Sunday, every Sunday, and light that, that next candle on that Advent wreath as we anticipated Christmas, as we, as we looked back and remembered Christ coming into the world because of the love that God has for us. And, and on this Sunday would be just that Sunday. It would be that, that pinnacle of Advent, that fourth Sunday, where we would come to that love candle, and you'd hear the pastor preach on the love of God that he has for the world, that he sent his son to save us. But if you've been with us, uh, and if you're visiting, welcome as well, uh, you know that we're doing things a little bit different. Instead of preaching those familiar Advent themes of hope, peace, joy, and love, we've been going through what we call the last four things. And those last four things are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And this is probably most curious today of all days, out of this entire series, that we would come on Christmas Eve, on the week where we're accustomed to hearing about the love of God. And instead of talking about the love of God, we're going to consider the wrath of God against the wicked as we come to this sobering subject of hell. And if this topic seems odd to you, let me explain to you why we're doing this series. I've already given Tate in advance that I'm throwing him under the bus. We're doing this because he suggested it. And uh, I say that because you'll remember that he preached on heaven a week ago, and, and here I am preaching on hell this week. And uh, it seemed like a good idea, even when he suggested it at first, that we would preach on the four last things. And I was eager to say, yeah, let's do it. And, and until it got closer to it, where I'm like, oh, man, why are we doing this? And so as I go through these reasons on why we're doing this, you can thank Tate. But this is a reminder for me, and I hope you at least see the import of, of why we're going through these last things. I've got two reasons. There's a lot more than that, but two reasons in particular why why it's important for us to set our minds on the four last things, including hell this morning. The first reason we're preaching through the four last things is because, well, Christmas, as well as much of the Christian faith for that matter, but Christmas especially has become a sentimental tradition for many people. There are professing Christians who celebrate Christmas, much in the same way that all of us do as well. They set up their nutcrackers, and next to the nutcrackers, they put up their nativity scene. They send their Christmas cards with their favorite Advent scripture printed on the front. And of course, they come to church like we all do this morning and again this evening to hear the story of Jesus' birth told and sing those familiar and beloved Christmas carols that we all know and love. And though these people may participate in many Christmas traditions in much of the same way that we do, they have no participation with Christ. Which brings us to the, the next reason why these last four things are important. Not just because people get too sentimental about Christmas, but, but these people who, who celebrate Christmas but have no participation in Christ, they stand condemned. They celebrate Christmas much in the same way that they celebrate Santa Claus. I hope we all know by now that Santa Claus isn't really coming tonight. 
We don't actually leave out the cookies. Maybe you do, but, but Santa doesn't really eat those cookies when he comes and, because he's not coming. And I fear that many think the same of Christ when we think of his second coming. We celebrate his first advent. We set out the nativity scenes. We think about those scriptures that we, we quote. But in all reality, we are not thinking and living and being changed by the reality that he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And all depending on how we actually respond to him in his first advent, his birth in the world, whether we believe in him or we reject him, has all to do with what we will experience in eternity, whether that be heaven or hell. And these subjects are realities that every single one of us will experience. And some of us know this far too well during this time of the year. Many of you, even now, even since we've started this series, have lost loved ones and have been affected by death. And furthermore, none of us are guaranteed to wake up on Christmas morning let alone to be here in a year from now to celebrate another Christmas. And so while so many people are celebrating Advent, feeling as if it were some trite, sentimental tradition, I, I hope that we are prepared this Advent season not just to open gifts and not just to give gifts, but I hope we're prepared to worship God and more than that, not just to worship Him today, but prepared for when He returns where we will worship Him forevermore. And so we have this most sobering subject before us this morning, that of hell. And to help us get a biblical understanding of what hell is, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians 1, and we're going to zoom in on verses 7 through 9. But before we do that, I want us to understand the broader context. Paul is writing to Thessalonian Christians who are suffering persecution. And he writes to comfort them. And to do so, he points to, to Christ and his coming, his return, when they will receive relief from those who afflict them, as well as justice will be executed against those who afflict the righteous. And these verses are bookended with two prayer reports, one at the beginning, one at the end. The prayer report at the beginning end uh, of this, verses 3 and 4, are a prayer report of thanksgiving for the faith that the Lord has given the Thessalonians while verse 11 and 12, are next, the, the second prayer report, are, are a prayer that the Thessalonians would endure in the faith to the end. And we'll come back to those details by the end of this message. But, but to help us guide our way through verses 7 through 9, I have five questions I want us to consider concerning hell. And the first is this. I want us to consider who hell is for. Who is hell for? If someone were to ask you this question, I wonder how you might answer Perhaps you would say something along the lines that, well, hell is for murderers, lowlifes, criminals, and thieves, and adulterers even. You might even quote Galatians 5, 21, and after the, listing all the sins that Paul lists there, you would, you would say that, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you wouldn't entirely be wrong to say that, that the wicked will go to hell, those sinners. But that's not entirely right either. Because we also know that Christ came into the world to save sinners, including you and me. And so just simply saying that hell is reserved for sinners isn't really sufficient. It really isn't a good answer. And it's not how Paul describes it either in our text before us. Listen to what Paul says when he describes who hell is for. He says this in verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, 
the Lord is going to come and bring this judgment on those who do not know God. One. And secondly, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So though these are, are two separate ideas here, I want us to understand that both these two ideas are about the same group of people. So those who do not know God are the ones who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And those who do not obey the gospel are also those who do not know God. They're one and the same. The Jews would hear this and they would think that those who do not know God are the Gentiles. That would be the wrong way to understand this passage. This is one and the same, but, but they are separate ideas all at once. So I want to consider them one at a time. Consider first that hell is for those who do not know God. Understand what this implies. Those who do not know God will experience God's wrath in hell. That's stated negatively, but now positively the same is true. If a person comes to know God, they will escape the wrath of God in hell. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, 1 Timothy 1, 15, the, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's what we celebrate this Advent. That's what we celebrate when we look back at Christ's birth of the world, that he came into the world to save sinners. So we should understand from this that if, if people need to know God in order to be saved, then we as Christians have a great burden to make Christ known among all peoples. Again, Romans 10, 13 and following. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, that is true, but there's a problem with that. Paul brings it up. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? In other words, if people do not know about God and of Jesus Christ, how will they ever come to know him and believe on him and be saved? So brothers and sisters, I hope you do feel that in light of the eternal judgment that is coming, the wrath of God against those who do not know him, I hope you feel the burden that, that we have as believers, actually the calling that God gives us to be his witnesses, witnesses for Christ, sharing the gospel with all who do not believe. Even myself, I've been thinking about different ways in which I might even redeem the season. This season that everyone celebrates, at least most people celebrate, but redeem it and make it more intentional as a way in which I might share the gospel with those who don't know. Now, I, I've never sent Christmas cards before, but this year I've been thinking, I think I might start. Because everyone sends Christmas cards to their, their family and their neighbors and all their, their ones they know, and they just talk about how, you know, Johnny lost a tooth and how uh, Susie is, is growing up and getting tall, and those are good and fine, but, but more importantly, I want to do that, except I want to tell them about what the Lord is doing in my kids' lives and what the Lord is doing in my life, and I want to share through that letter with my family and loved ones who don't know Jesus, my neighbors as well, about the reason why we celebrate Christmas and the hope that we have because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not only that, though, but if you're celebrating Christmas, even this season with extended family, you have another wonderful opportunity, perhaps tonight and tomorrow, to share the gospel with 
with those extended relatives that you don't get to see very often. Don't just use that, that day as an opportunity to exchange gifts and meals, but, but use this as an, as an opportunity to share the gospel with those who you love, those who you know in your own home, who do not know Christ. And even if, if you decide to do this in a way that's not connected to Christmas at all, if you're thinking, well, I don't have plans for Christmas and, and the, the season for sending those cards is too late, know this, there are opportunities all around you to share the gospel with with your neighbors, your coworkers, with your family. But you should ask the Lord to open a door for the word. Ask him to make an opportunity for you to share the gospel with those who do not believe. And then actively look for opportunities to share the gospel with your family and your neighbors and your coworkers. Perhaps even you might consider joining the evangelism team that's been going out here from Living Water Church into the mall and into parks and all sorts of places to share the gospel with those who are perishing and do not believe. Oh, there's countless ways. If you would just think about how you might share a reason for the hope that is in you with those who do not know. This might take some thought and creativity, but I trust you can do so. People who do not know God will be separated from God and go to hell. But the second category I want us to consider as well is that hell is for those who do not obey the gospel. There is a great burden that we have, and that is to bear witness to Christ, to those who do not believe, to plant those gospel seeds through the proclamation of the word. And I'm not talking about preaching in the pulpit. I'm talking about sharing even with a, a person across the table. Planting seeds through the proclamation of the word, and not only that, but through prayer and patience and persistence in doing these things. That's a burden that I hope you feel. But... I want you to know that though you would plant in water, God is the one who needs to cause the growth. Only he's the one who can actually cause that person who's dead in their sins to come to life. And that's what we mean here in the second part of this, where hell is for those who do not obey the gospel. It's not just for those who know something about God. Those who know God will also obey the gospel. That is, they're going to respond to the message of Jesus Christ, and they're going to believe in him. And I don't want us to carry that burden on our shoulders, because that is not a burden that we can carry. We cannot change the heart. Only God can do that. But not only that, but I want us to also examine ourselves to ensure that we aren't people who are just filled up with knowledge about God without having a heart that loves him and knows him truly. There's a huge distinction that we should make between knowing about God and knowing God. When I think about people who know a lot about other people, I think about my father-in-law, because my father-in-law, I think I've shared with you before, is a, a huge football fan. In particular, he knows a lot about John Elway, the quarterback for the, the former quarterback for the Denver Broncos. He knows a lot about John Elway, but this is not the same as knowing John Elway, right? There's a big difference between being a fan of something or someone and a friend of someone. Similarly, there are many who know much about God, many who love to learn more and more about God. And this is good to be clear that we should grow in our knowledge of God, but it should be an experiential knowledge, a knowledge of having intimacy with God, an intimacy of drawing near to him and abiding with him as Tate preached about last week. Having this kind of knowledge of God is not the same as knowing about God. Take the Pharisees for examples. They, they, they knew a lot about God. They studied the Old Testament scriptures 
And they had a bunch of head knowledge. But listen to what Jesus said to them. They, this the Pharisees, said to Jesus, Therefore, where is your father? And Jesus said, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Understand, you cannot know God if you do not believe in Jesus Christ and if you do not know him. So how does one come to know God? Obey the gospel. Hear of Jesus Christ and come to know Jesus Christ, believing in him, knowing that he came into the world to save sinners. John puts it this way in John 1. No one has ever seen God, that being God the Father. The only God, now being the Son, who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus Christ, has made him the Father known. If you want to know God, know Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, look to Jesus Christ who made the Father known. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So believe in him. Those are those who will not go into heaven, but those who will go into hell, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Let's go to the second question now and consider what hell is like. The Bible is full of vivid descriptions on what hell will be like. It's described as a, a furnace of fire, described as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, Hell is described as the place that is cursed and prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is marked by darkness, described as the bottomless pit. Hell is the lake of fire and the second death. We could go on and on and expound upon all these images, but for the sake of focus this morning, so we might get through this, we're going to look at how Paul describes hell in this text. 2 Thessalonians 1.7, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, there's a description there, but we're not going to go too much into that, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here it is, the description of hell. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. What will hell be like? Answer, hell will be an eternal destruction. Who can fathom this? Who can fathom what eternity is like? Those of us who are finite cannot. We cannot even begin to comprehend something that is eternal. And while you and I have very little to compare to, at least in this life, of something that is eternal, let me at least try to compare it or explain it and understand it by comparing it to what we might conceive of. You might compare this brief momentary life, even a full life of, let's even say, a hundred years to a thimble of water in comparison to all the waters that fill the oceans. You might compare this short and momentary life to that of eternity by considering what one grain of sand is like in comparison to all the sand that fills every beach and every desert on the earth. Okay, these comparisons, I hope, give us some sense as to just how insignificant this life is in terms of its, its length in comparison to eternity. But even these comparisons fall so far short because water in the ocean and sand in the world, these are finite things. They have their limit. There is an end to their mass. But eternity goes on and on and on and on. 
And so consider, what is 80 years of enjoyment of pleasures here on the earth in exchange for an eternal destruction in hell? But I don't want us to misunderstand what this eternal destruction is like either in, in saying that it's, it's going to be an eternal end. That's not what he's saying. It's not in, we're not annihilated when a person goes to hell. Listen again to how he describes it in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He says that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And so we should understand then that hell will be a place of conscious suffering, eternal torment, waking agony, not a place of annihilation. Hell will be a place of absolute horror. All kinds of men try to comfort those who are living when they lose those who did not know the Lord. They will say, offer, offer words of comfort like they're in a better place now. They're finally at rest. If they do not know God, I want you to know this. These are lies. They are not in a better place if they do not know God. And they are not at rest if they have not come to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are lies used to comfort those who are living when in fact what we should do is, is know that death is coming, not just for them, but for all people, including us. And if we have not repented, we must believe in Jesus Christ. Revelation 14, 11 gets at this, this waking agony that all people who do not know God will suffer for all time, all eternity. It says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Whatever suffering here on earth we might experience, hell is beyond comparison. Not only that, Jesus himself, our own Lord, who came gentle and lowly, meek and mild himself, he describes hell as the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is an eternal suffering that will be experienced by many in hell. Let me tell you a story that happened the other day. Outside our church parking lot, a man, uh, we don't know exactly what happened, but he, he passed out. He fell, and he hit his head against the curb, and he was bleeding profusely from his head. And at the moment, Abby noticed it, and she, she said, hey, someone needs to go out there. He fell, and, and so I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Luckily, Tate knows what to do in a moment like that, not me. And so Tate went out and he stabilized the, the man's neck and Abby called 911 and, and everyone stopped because everyone got a sense of the urgency of what was going on in that moment. No one knew him, but that didn't prevent anyone from attending to him. We were all busy with work, but that did not hinder anyone from, from taking action. The urgency of the moment was sensed by everyone in the building. Brothers and sisters, there is a far more urgent suffering that people are going to experience than a man falling down and hitting his head on the curb. And that suffering is an eternal suffering of hell that people are heading towards and they don't even know it. One pastor, John Piper, is well known for saying that we as Christians care about all suffering. And this is true. Do you agree with that if you're a Christian? Christians care about all suffering, but then he adds, especially eternal suffering. 
You and I, every single one of us here, we know people who are on their way to hell. And unless they come to know God and obey the gospel by believing in Jesus Christ, they will suffer for all eternity. And so warn your relatives who are living their life here and now, spending their 80 years trying to figure out how they might make it rich. Warn them by asking them, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Show your neighbor that their good works, that's a nice neighbor, yes, but show them that their good works will not save them by telling them that we have all been unclean. Our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities. Like the wind, take us away. So many people in the world think, oh, I'm good. Therefore, God will accept me on that last day. No, no. Warn them and tell them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Warn your unbelieving brother and sister by showing them the unseen realities that they do not see with their eyes, but there are realities that are far more real, far more permanent than the very things that we see and touch. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, brothers and sisters, there are so many other encounters in which you, you know people who are going to die and they're going to go to hell. And maybe, just maybe, God has put you in their life so that through you the gospel might be heard and they might believe and have eternal life. We have good news to share. And that is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And this is gloriously good news. And it is made more glorious and more clear when we see what we are saved from. Oh, the gospel, it is beautiful like a diamond compared to often a diamond that is so beautiful, but you don't quite see it clearly if you're just holding it and, and putting it in your palm. And so if you've been to a jeweler looking at diamonds, what do they do? They slide that black velvet under the diamond so that you might see every facet of that diamond in all its glory and brilliance and beauty. So too, we have good news, good news of eternal life, good news of salvation. But what is, the, what is the black cloth that goes underneath that gospel that makes that gospel so glorious and beautiful? It is that apart from Jesus Christ coming to the world and apart from faith, we would suffer for all eternity. I want us to know this. Make sure we're fully aware of it. That hell is not one of the, the minor, quiet, soft themes of the Bible. No, hell is the forte that's, that's shown over and over and over again. Even Jesus Christ himself repeatedly warned about the wrath of God that is to come. And every apostle, too, spoke often about hell. And so while we might be so soft and timid, even myself included, to speak about hell, brothers and sisters, let us not... Let's not, let's not be quiet. Let us not be silent. For this picture, the, the scripture speaks so clearly and loudly and often. Christ came to save us from the wrath of God. So let us warn others of the wrath of God that is coming against those who do not know him. Thirdly, let's ask this and consider this morning, where is hell at? People often get, get really caught up into to speculation here, thinking that, well, perhaps hell is in the middle of the earth because it's a place of, of fire. Others think it's in a black hole because of the depiction of outer darkness. Those are not the locations that I'm curious about. That's just speculation, and I don't think it's profitable for any of us to consider that kind of location in hell. 
Let us look at what Paul says about the location of where hell is in verse 9. Those who do not know God, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Here's the location. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, this is a difficult concept for us to grasp that there's, there's a place where God's presence isn't, isn't at, at least the way we're looking, away from the presence of the Lord. Difficult to grasp all the more so because what we know of God is that he is omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. But Paul here is, is not contradicting God's omnipresence any more than when he said that his desire was to depart to, to and be with Christ. When Paul or when t- excuse me, preached on that, just, just the beginning of our Advent series, he knows that Christ is with him here in this life, that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He knows that, but, but he knows that there is a being with Christ in heaven that is far greater than Christ with us here on earth because the veil will be removed and we will see him face to face. And so when we're talking about being away, those in hell being separated from the presence of Christ, no, we're talking about degrees of God's presence. Just as there is a difference between being in God's presence even for the Old Testament believer, that of being between Jerusalem and being in Moab, or even being in the, the outer courts of the temple or in the Holy of Holies. And so hopefully you understand what makes heaven, heaven, so to speak. Usually when people talk about, oh, it was heaven, it was paradise. People talk about it because things on earth, what we can conceive of what is paradise is things that are comfortable and tropical and warm with delicious food and good company and all those kinds of things where the cares of life go away. And so we say, well, it was like heaven. Is that what heaven, is that what makes heaven heaven? Is it just carefree? No. Is heaven heaven because that's where our loved ones are? No. What makes heaven so good? Listen to the the words of John from Revelation 21. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Here at Revelation at the very end, we see the curse from Genesis 3 that brought upon death and pain and suffering because we were separated from God because of our sin. It has become undone because once again, God has made his dwelling place with man. That's what makes heaven, heaven. God is there. And this is what's even wrapped up in our benediction that we'll hear again by the end of the service. And Brian sends us saying, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What is he saying? May you be comforted by the Lord's face, his presence, his goodness, knowing that all good things come from him. And again, this is why death is gain for the believer. Death is gain for the believer because to die means to be with Christ, as Paul said in Philippians 1. It's what makes heaven, heaven. It's where God is. And so what is it that makes hell so horrific then? Hell is horrific because it is away from the the presence of God. Hell is hell because it is away from the goodness of, of God. 
we are cut off from the very source of life. That's why even in the book of Exodus, after the people sinned, you saw there was going to be another exile, another kind of Eden where the people were sent out of the presence of God because Israel once again had sinned against the Lord. And so the Lord, he said to Moses in Exodus 33, he said, depart from here, depart, go, you and Israel, all of them, depart to the land which I swore to Abraham. He's talking about the promised land now. Depart, go to the, go to the land. Saying to your offspring, I will, uh, to your offspring I will get, I will send the angel before you. He's going to go send an angel. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all your enemies. I'm going to drive them all out. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But there's the, the exception right here. Here's the catch. The Lord said to Moses, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're, you are a stiff-necked people. In other words, have the promised land, be rid of your enemies, have all the pleasures of the world that you might imagine, but you will not get me. You will not get God. You will be cast away from the presence of God. And Moses, wiser than most, wiser than, than us, he, he asks God to relent from his anger. Exodus thirty-three fifteen. And Moses said to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct and I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Oh, he's so wise because he knows the promised land is not good if God is not there. And so this is the good news that we celebrate even at Advent, when we celebrate and sing songs of Emmanuel, God with us. Because in Christ's coming, once again, God dwelt with man, as we read from John 1. And the Word became flesh. The Word, of course, being Jesus Christ, the eternal, infinite God who is always with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, that we would know Christ this Christmas and value him as Paul did. And he said, indeed, I count everything as loss, everything as loss, every treasure that we might accumulate here on the earth. I count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Oh, Paul, like Moses, was a wise man. I do pray that we would have the same wisdom from God that we might treasure Christ. Let's consider the fourth question now. When will hell be experienced? For this question, I want those of you who are here who do not believe to pay careful attention. When will hell be experienced? Paul says in verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with all his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. When will hell be experienced? It will be when Jesus returns. 
Now, you should note that just because hell is something that happens at the very end does not mean that even the unbeliever will not suffer when they die. We read about Hades and the suffering that is there from Luke 16, 22 to 24. We see that, that very similar to hell, we see the rich man suffering and tormented by, by the afflictions of Hades. So I don't want you to think that, well, okay, then I don't need to live for the Lord because I'll die and I'll have at least some rest before the final judgment. I don't want you to make that connection, but, but the distinction between hell and Hades is perhaps helpful to note, but not crucial to grasp this morning. There are two things you need to grasp this morning if you do not believe in Jesus. And the first is this, that Jesus is going to come at any moment. You might be putting off repentance thinking that you have another day you might have tomorrow. You might have a year, 10 years from now to continue in your, your life of pleasure. But then at the end of your life, you might repent. Oh, that would be absolutely foolish for you to do this morning if you do not believe. Peter describes the coming of the Lord like this. He says, but the day of the Lord, that's his second coming, when he will pour out his wrath on the wicked. That day will come like a thief. That is to say, you don't know when he's going to come. And then the heavens will pass away and the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned and up and dissolved in the earth and the works, all that are done will be exposed. So if you, you think you can just get away with living a life however you please and putting off repentance and putting off coming to Jesus till your deathbed, do not be mistaken. The Lord is coming and he is coming when you do not expect him. And so repent while it is called day. And the second thing you need to know is not about the details and all the ins and outs about the second advent, but what you need to know is this, what I have said time and time again, that Jesus came to save sinners. The saying is trustworthy and, full of, and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those, that might be you here this morning, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So if you think, no, I have done too many sins for Christ to ever forgive me, Paul is saying, no, if he could accept me, he can accept you too. And so this morning, if you confess your sins with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do not delay your repentance any longer, for Christ will return at any moment. But now let me turn to our final question and consider why should what I assume is the majority of us in here this morning, why should Christians think about hell on this Christmas Eve? And we can come up with more than a few answers of our own. Of course, as we've already talked about, the backdrop, that black velvety backdrop makes the splendor of the diamond of the gospel shine with all the more brilliance so that we might rejoice to know what God has saved us from. Furthermore, we should know about hell and think about hell because we know of many who, who are on the wide path and heading to hell if they do not hear the message of salvation that we have come to believe. But why did Paul, in this text, bring up the final judgment for the Thessalonian believers? Why does he bring up hell and judgment for these believers who are suffering? Well, he wrote to them for at least two reasons that I see in this text. He wrote to them, one, to comfort them, and two, to encourage them. Let's consider these one at a time. 
These are the bookended prayers that came before and after this text about the final judgment. Before uh, he, he went into the details about the second judgment, the final judgment, excuse me, the second coming of Christ, he wrote to them to comfort them in their affliction. And he, he gives a prayer of thanksgiving for these believers. Very curious thing to talk about when he's going to go in to talk about the wrath of God and hell and all, all these terrible things that we have been thinking about this morning. But, but he begins with thanksgiving because there is solid evidence for their faith. And so why should we think about hell this morning? We should think about hell so that we ourselves would look and examine ourselves to see if there are any evidences of grace in our life. Listen to the, the prayer report here, and listen to the, in particular, the evidences of their faith. These evidences of God's grace at work in these believers. He says this, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. So they didn't just begin in the faith, but they're, they're growing in the faith. And more than this, he says, in the love of every one of you, uh, excuse me, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So not only are they growing in faith, but they're growing in love. Two wonderful, gracious evidences of, of the Lord's work in their life. Therefore, he says, we ourselves boast about you to all the churches of God for your, again, more evidences, steadfastness in the faith and all of your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. They are continuing even in the faith despite hard trials. And so he says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering and so, brothers and sisters, I want you today just as well to examine your own lives. You might be a professor of, uh, of Jesus. You might profess to believe in him. But if you do, in fact, believe in him, if you have obeyed the gospel and have come to know God, there will be evidences in your life of God's grace that is at work in you. And there is a sweet thing that we call and refer to as the assurance of salvation. And these, these examples here at the beginning of our text are sweet assurances of the salvation that caused Paul himself to give thanks and to boast in the faith of these Christians who are suffering. But if you want to learn more about the assurances of salvation so that you might have confidence that you do, in fact, belong to God, I encourage you to read 1 John and study it carefully. But I want us to be clear about this. There is a massive difference between this assurance of salvation and an assumption of salvation. A massive difference between assurance and assumption. Some of you assume your salvation because, again, you have a lot of head knowledge about God. And yet all the while, there is no solid evidence of God's grace in your life. And if there is no solid evidence of God's grace in your life, things like a love for your brothers and sisters that's growing and growing and growing and faith that is continuing even despite hard times, if there are no solid evidences of faith, of grace in your life, then brothers and sisters, you should not, you should not rest in some false assurance that isn't yours. Remember, even the demons believe and they tremble. And so you should look at your life and see what solid evidence there is. And if there is no evidence of God, God's grace, then hear the wisdom given to the kings of the earth from Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and 
rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you have no assurance of salvation that is based on solid evidences of God's grace in your life, take refuge in Jesus Christ. Humble yourself before him and ask him to forgive you. Ask him to transform you. Ask him to save you. But the other reason that we should also consider hell and think on this this morning is because we need to persevere in the faith, especially and all the more so when there is no evidence of God's goodness, at least before our present eyes. And, and let's not mistake what I'm saying here. God is good. He is always good. Even if we do not see it, he is faithful and he is good and he will not change. But there are times in life where we do not see his goodness clearly and we begin to question what we believe. We look around and we see the world going from bad to worse. We look even in our family, even perhaps in our own situations, and we think, you know what? Following Jesus isn't worth it anymore. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, and I see no solid evidence of any reason why I should continue in the faith. You look around and you see the wicked prosper while the righteous perish. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 said, if there is no resurrection from the dead... That is to say, if death really is the end, and there is no judgment, no heaven, no hell, if there is no resurrection from the dead, Paul said, then we as Christians are of all people most to be pitied. And so, in a state of looking about ourselves and seeing the wicked prosper while we suffer, we might be tempted to abandon the faith. We might envy the wicked and begin to take notes from them and imitating them instead. We might begin to walk in the counsel of the wicked. We might stand in the way of sinners. We might sit in the seat of scoffers, the way the blessed man is told not to do, instructed not to do from Psalm 1. We might think, they got it better than I do, so I'm going to imitate them. Oh, don't do so, brothers and sisters. Don't, don't be like the wicked Psalm 1 continues in 5 and 6. He says this, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if, if you look about yourself and you think, you know what, I'm done living for Jesus. I'm going to start living for myself. Understand, you are making a foolish, foolish mistake. Don't be like the foolish virgins that Jesus spoke of who did not bring oil to keep their lamps burning for when he would return. Matthew 25, 10 and following, Jesus said this of those foolish virgins. They, were, they themselves were like you this morning, waiting for the bridegroom to come, but they ran out of oil. And so, he says, they went to, and they went to buy more oil. And when they were gone, though, the bridegroom came and those who were ready, those who kept their oil ready to burn in the lamp, they, those who were ready went in to be with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, here's these familiar words once again, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, Jesus says, 
For you, yourselves, Christians, brothers and sisters, know neither the day nor the hour of Christ's return. And so Paul, he prays for the Thessalonian believers that they themselves would watch themselves so that they too might be worthy of Jesus Christ when he comes. And so, brothers and sisters, may we too watch ourselves. May we be continual in prayer and continually looking to Christ, not being so distracted with all the, the glitter and glamour of Christmas, nor, nor the, the things of the world, the moth eats and destroys and thieves break in and steal. Let us not be distracted by these things that are transient, but let us look to the things that are unseen, the eternal things, which is Christ. And so to this end, brothers and sisters, we pray always for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord accomplish that in us by his grace and his power. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for the gift that you have given us in Christ, that you sent him into the world so that we might know you, that you sent your son to die on the cross to bear the penalty of our sins so that we might be reconciled to you. And we thank you even now that you are with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, but you who began the work in us will see it through to completion. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would do that work in us, God. And if it were left up to ourselves, we would surely perish. And so, God, would you give us strength, give us your power, give us faith, so that we might endure and be counted worthy when you come. And so, Lord, would you be honored and glorified in our lives? Would you use us, Lord, to spread a passion for your glory, and to even share the gospel with those who have no hope. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us, give us an opportunity to share. And I pray that you would bless those efforts and save those who are perishing. All glory to you and to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.